I'll say this, I'm a great big fan of March Madness. Anybody else love March Madness? If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's not like Black Friday, it's not a shopping thing. This is the men's and women's college basketball tournaments. They just concluded over the past week. What makes it so great, the reason it's called March Madness is because every year there are just dramatic upsets, uh, shots at the buzzer, buzzer beaters uh, to win the game. And as you watch it, it's especially interesting if you're kind of watching from, you know, an unbiased perspective. You don't really care who wins. If you're a state fan, Ole Miss, Southern Miss, you know, we don't have anybody in the tournament that we care about, right? So we're watching these other teams and living, you know, vicariously through them. I don't care who wins. And so it's kind of an interesting perspective. A shot at the buzzer, it goes in. And you watch what unfolds in that moment. You've got one side of the arena that erupts. They jump out of their shoes, unbridled joy and excitement, the thrill of victory, while the other side of the arena collapses, totally defeated and despondent, utterly heartbroken. Tears of joy on one side, just plain old tears on the other side, right? And maybe as a, as a player or a coach or a fan, you've experienced one end or maybe both of those extremes personally at some point, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. Well, y'all, today's Easter Sunday. And if you'll just allow me to carry out this analogy, you know, a little bit more here. This, today, if you're a part of the church, this is our great day of victory. Greater than any other day on the calendar where we declare once and for all that Jesus Christ is risen. He is alive. And that means for everyone who trusts in Him to receive His grace, we now have life, eternal life, in Him. And so we celebrate, and we ought to celebrate. We put our kids in their best smocked outfits on Easter Sunday, all right? Uh, We uh, we put the honey-baked ham in the oven on Easter Sunday. Uh, I mean, this, this is victory in Jesus we're talking about. Our Savior forever who sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. If I knew how to dance, y'all, I would on Easter Sunday. Lucky for y'all, I don't. But I, you know, it's fascinating, and I think very important, that whenever we actually come to the Easter account in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all tell us of the resurrection. It's interesting to note that on that very first Easter Sunday, as the day began, everyone who was connected to Jesus, both his family and his followers, they all began that day on the losing side of the arena, as it were. Easter began not with a feast, but a funeral. Not with dancing, but with weeping. Not with a sunrise church service, but with Jesus' disciples shuttered up in the dark, hiding out in fear of their own lives. And I think it's important for us to consider the world as it was before the light dawned on that first Easter so that we might better see and savor the world that now is because of the resurrection. And so we've already read this morning from Luke 24, the first 12 verses concerning the witness of the women and Peter running to the tomb, but no one at this point has seen the Lord. What I'd like for us to see now is at least in large part the rest of the story. This is going to be an extended reading of the scripture But I want us now to see what happens on the road to Emmaus, which is 
the very next verse, this is Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13, we're going to read through to get a sense of the scope of what's happening here with two disciples in particular. It says in verse 13, Luke writes, Behold, two of them were going that very day, Sunday, to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of, us who were, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how Jesus was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Now, as we read this account of the two disciples on the road, we have an insight already into what they cannot yet see and understand, don't we? We know already by now, based on the earlier parts of the same chapter, we know Jesus is alive. He's been raised, but they don't. Not yet. These men are still living under the dark shadow of the cross and what they've understood the cross to mean, and that explains their bitter condition. That explains why they're so sad. These men are utterly defeated. 
And it shouldn't be difficult for us to, to understand why. I mean, think about it from their perspective. These men were disciples of Jesus, meaning they had devoted themselves entirely, their whole lives, to following Him. They put all their eggs in His basket, only to stand by on Good Friday and watch as Jesus was betrayed and condemned and crucified. And see, from the perspective of these Jewish men, there was just no way that the, that the anointed one of God, the Messiah, could suffer that kind of fate. They didn't have a category in their minds for a crucified Messiah. There just wasn't any such thing. And so when Jesus died and was now buried in the tomb, it was obvious to them that he couldn't possibly be who they thought he was, or even who he claimed to be. This movement had failed. Their hopes were dashed. And so here it is now on Sunday. These men have packed up and they are going home. They're leaving Jerusalem and going back to Emmaus in hopes of picking up whatever pieces are left for their lives. But one thing is clear for them. The show is over. But then as they're walking along the road, this seven-mile stretch from Jerusalem to Emmaus, Luke tells us that the risen Jesus comes up alongside them and says, what are you guys talking about? There's a very subtle humor here as Luke records this story. Luke tells us, of course, that they don't recognize him. Their eyes, for a time, are prevented from knowing that it's Jesus. So under, they're, they're, they're under this impression here that some ignorant stranger has walked up alongside them. How in the world could you not know all that's been taking place in and around Jerusalem in these days? He doesn't seem to know, and so they just stand there still and they tell him their sad story. And we see it again. If you see again in verse 19 there in Luke 24, Cleopas, one of the two, says to this stranger, it's Jesus the Nazarene. He was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. And the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Now there's a really interesting clue here based on what this disciple has just said. It's obvious that they would be despondent and feel defeated. They just watched Jesus crucified. The most horrible thing they've ever witnessed or even dreamed of. But it's actually more than that. As to what makes them so defeated, so sad and despondent on the road. Y'all, again, we have insight here into something they don't. These men, even Jesus' own disciples at this point of the story, they were ignorant of Jesus' true identity as well as his true purpose. There was something about him they did not yet understand. You see, they refer to him as a great prophet. And certainly he was. But they have not yet recognized him as the Son of God. They hoped he would be their Redeemer, they say. But they have not yet understood the nature of his redemption, that Jesus did not come to overthrow the oppressive Roman Empire and to reestablish Israel and its place in the world. No, Jesus' redemption came in the form of ultimate self-sacrifice. 
And so it was, not only with these two on the road, but with all of the disciples of Jesus, even his own family at this point, no one yet understood what was really happening there on Good Friday. That this was God's Son willingly and purposefully going to the cross to make atonement for the sins of the world. See, from their vantage point, Jesus' death could only mean one thing. It could only mean failure. We had hoped he would redeem Israel. But clearly and obviously we were wrong. Now see, again, we can appreciate the irony, perhaps as we read this story, knowing what we know, that these two men are kicking rocks and pouting as the risen Jesus literally stands right next to them listening to all of their complaints. But y'all, I mentioned this before, and I think it's important for us to consider the weight of what these men are saying and what they're feeling, okay? And this is very difficult for us to do at this point in time. I realize it. But let's just ask the question for, for our own sake this morning. What if these guys were right? What if the world, as they knew it in that precise moment was really the world as it truly was for them and also for us. That is to say, what if Jesus really was only a prophet? Just a noble martyr who died for his cause, only to be buried and then forgotten, just like all the rest. What then? Y'all, we don't have to wonder what the implications of that might be. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament actually tells us And he gives it to us in very stark language. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul makes very clear the implications of Easter Sunday. What is at stake when we speak about the resurrection of Jesus? Listen to what Paul says and feel the weight of this as he writes it. This is 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 14. Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise. If in fact the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Now what's Paul saying right here? If the Easter story is just that, if it's only a story, or if we even just take it as symbolic, and I've heard a lot of people Say it like this, you know, it doesn't really matter if Jesus rose from the dead. What matters is the symbol of life and new birth and possibility. The testimony of the scripture gives us no alternatives here. There is a clear and absolute line that is consistent throughout the Bible, but Paul says it maybe more uh, clearly and succinctly than anybody else. Here's the truth. If Jesus has not been raised, he says, then our faith is vain and worthless. Those who preach Christ are false witnesses. Our sins are not forgiven. 
our loved ones who have trusted Christ and then died in faith, they are not in heaven. We will not see them again. And we Christians are the most pitiable fools in all the world. What Paul is telling us here is the stakes of Easter are higher than any other event in all the history of the universe. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, really and truly, physically and bodily, then there is no hope at all for the world. None. The light of the world was extinguished about 2,000 years ago. He was dead and buried. And that's the exact same bleak future that awaits us all. This is the world that the first disciples woke up to on that first Easter Sunday. It was for them as bleak and dark and hopeless as we could possibly imagine, y'all. But then the light dawned. Then the sun rose, quite literally. The sun rose. And beyond their wildest hopes and expectations, outside of all of their religious categories, Jesus was now alive again. And here in Luke 24, it's so fascinating for us to watch the development for these two disciples because the light begins to dawn on them as they travel this road with this stranger who they do not yet realize is the living Christ. Notice again, as they've shared their sad and terrible story, how Jesus responds to them. This is in verse 25. Jesus said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now take heart, Jesus is not calling these people stupid. What he's saying to them, though, is profound. Why are you so slow of heart to believe? Believe what? That all of the scripture, the whole Bible, testifies to God's purpose in sending his son, Jesus. God's idea to send His Son did not begin in Matthew chapter 1. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, no, this was God's plan from before He ever created the universe. And not only that, but when Jesus did come, He came with the express purpose of suffering. Suffering and dying on the cross. That was not an accident. That was not outside of God's plan and purpose. No, Jesus did it to accomplish our redemption. That's the reason He came. And that means for these disciples on the road, that means for all of us, the cross of Christ was not a defeat. It was not a failure. We wouldn't put it on the wall behind me here if it was really an emblem of shame. The cross was for Jesus and for us an emblem now of victory. The overwhelming forgiveness of the sins of the world was accomplished on that very cross. And now, because of His great victory, we see a sealing and a vindication of all that Christ has done in his resurrection. The cross and the resurrection go together. You cannot have one without the other. Atonement was made on the cross. Vindication in the empty tomb. Everything that Jesus is, all that he said and did, 
Every promise he made is now certain because he's alive. Christ came to suffer, Jesus says on that road, and enter into his glory. It's all part of God's plan. And he shows them patiently. He opens up the Bible and shows them. Now, y'all, wouldn't it have been easier and much more efficient? Seven miles from Jerusalem to to Emmaus, if they're just walking at a normal pace, two hours, two and a half hours, wouldn't it have been much more efficient if Jesus had just stopped these two guys on the road and said, guys, it's me. Look. It would have been more efficient. Yes. But you notice what Jesus is doing here, something he does for them, and, and, and in a very real way, something he does for us, all of us. So wonderful and so necessary. Jesus is taking time to enlighten these men to the truth about himself. The truth in all the scripture concerning himself. And y'all, when we open up the Bible to study God's word, God is always doing this for us by the power and grace of his Holy Spirit. He's showing us who he is and who we are and how we relate to him and what he's done for us and what it means to know him and walk with his son Jesus, what it means to have a future, a life that is to come by his grace. Everything is in here. And Jesus is very graciously revealing it all to these men as they walk. Y'all, here's the truth for us today. God has not left us to navigate life based on our best religious ideas and impulses. None of us has to make this thing up as we go. God has given us the revelation of all truth and the revelation of himself that we might know him. And so, y'all, when we say that the resurrection of Jesus is true, yes, it is a fact of history. It really did happen. But we're also saying that the resurrection of Jesus accords with the truth. This was always God's plan revealed to us from Genesis chapter 1 on through the end. The whole book, Jesus is saying, the whole thing points to me. God's whole purpose for all eternity is centered on the person of Jesus Christ and his salvation and the glories of his grace. Jesus is teaching these men to stand upon his word because everything in the end points to him. And y'all, if that's true, then Easter is not just something we believe with our minds. The resurrection is actually something that transforms the heart. If Jesus is alive, then that means everything has changed, both in this world, present day, in the world to come, both for the world in general, but especially for you and me individually. And we get to see it again. This story is developing as we read it. We see how it begins to happen in the lives of these two men. Once they arrive in Emmaus, their home, Jesus is acting like he's just going to keep on going, right? And they say, no, 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 it's about to get dark. Come on in, stay with us, have a meal. And so he does. And Jesus presides over the meal. Very strange. He was not the host. He was the guest. But he takes the position of the host. He breaks the bread. And then Luke tells us, their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And y'all, I, it's, we can only imagine what that moment must have been like for them. These two men who had been living and walking in the bleak darkness of death. Suddenly now, a burst of light 
and life and hope and joy and wonder. And all the connections are now being made as to what Jesus was telling them when they didn't know it was Jesus on the road, how all of these things had to happen just so under the sovereign and wonderful plan of God. And now the connections have become clear both in their minds and in their hearts. And they say it. You see this in verse 32? They look at one another at this point and they say, were not our hearts burning within us while He was speaking to us on the road? While He was explaining the Scriptures to us? See y'all, the message of the Gospel, the good news is not just for the mind, it's also for the heart. To hear of God's love for the world, a love so rich, so lavish, that He would send us His own Son, sending Him for the sake of sinners like me and you. Jesus said it Himself that He came to seek and to save that which is lost. And this salvation He achieved On our behalf, what we could never do for ourselves, Jesus came to do by dying in our place, by bearing the judgment of our sin in His own body on the cross. That He might accomplish for us the forgiveness of our sins and also grant to us eternal life in His name. We are now alive. In Him. And so, y'all, what this means for us, all who believe that when we look upon Jesus Christ and trust Him, His resurrection changes everything for us. It's not just a fact of history, it's not just a spiritual, you know. A, a handle that we hang on to. It changes us from the inside out forever. Y'all, e- Easter was not only a victory for Jesus. But Easter is now our victory in Jesus. We don't just marvel at the fact that He is alive. We ourselves now have life in Him. And so, y'all, this is is why Easter is, is transforming to us. That when we come to Jesus in faith, we are united with He doesn't just sprinkle His grace upon us from heaven. He actually comes near and close and abides in us and indwells us. This is a mystery now, but there's a uniting that takes place. We are in Christ. The Apostle Paul frames this so wonderfully in Romans chapter 6. Paul tells us that when Jesus died, those who trust Him also died. We died to sin. We died to the old self What Kyle used to be no longer is. Dead and buried now because of Christ. And then he says this, Romans 6, 4. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Because Jesus is truly alive, you and I may be transformed, changed entirely by His grace to a new life right here, right now, a life that never ends. Easter is not just practically true, it's personally transforming. And y'all, I want to encourage you in this. It doesn't matter today who you are or where you've been or even what you've done. 
when we come to Jesus Christ, every other variable, every other boundary is obliterated when we receive His grace. There is no sin so great. There is no person so obscure, so far away that the reach of grace cannot take hold of us. And so I want to encourage y'all in this. Maybe you feel like you're far from God today. Maybe you feel very obscure, even forgotten. Maybe you feel like the second disciple in Luke chapter 24. I don't know if you picked up on this. Two guys. One is named Cleopas. The other one is not named. And you have to wonder if this guy, when Luke finished his gospel and it went to the press, and he opened it up and he turned to the end first because he knew he was in there. (laughs) And he's reading through. He sees Cleopas, yeah. And he keeps reading and he thinks, it's it's me, Billy. (laughs) What? You know, he's calling Luke on the phone. You know, obviously no phones. I'm being fanciful here. This guy is an unnamed footprint, a footnote in history, right? No footprint. No, he's, just a, he's a footnote. It's, I mean, in some sense, it's as if he wasn't even there. He has no name. And I want to say to y'all, it's possible that you and I will end up just like this guy. I, I can say this, and it's not, to, it's not to disparage any of us. In 100 years, nobody's going to even know I was here. And that has to be okay for me. That has to be okay for us. Right? You don't know your great-great-grandparents' names. Don't pretend like you do. <laughs> We will die and be forgotten. But you are not forgotten in the eyes of God. Jesus knows you. In fact, it's better than that. The Apostle Paul says it, and he personalizes it. He says, Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. And that is true of you right where you sit. Jesus knows you and loves you. And through his own death and his resurrection, he has made a way for you to know him. To be united with him forever. That is the good news that Easter now affords us. We are not celebrating a great life of just another martyr in the pages of history. Let's admire him, and that's all we can do. Now we're celebrating a Savior whose death achieved our salvation, and whose resurrection sealed our greatest hopes. Y'all, at the end of The Lord of the Rings, Sam the Hobbit sees Gandalf the wizard. And he's amazed to see him because Sam watched Gandalf die in the earlier chapters of the first book. He watched it happen. He knew he was gone. And he's lived now the rest of the story under the impression that Gandalf was forever gone. But now he sees him again alive and well, clothed in white. And Sam cries out, I thought you were dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Remember, if there is no resurrection... Paul says all of life, all of it, all of our faith is in vain. Religion is just a bad hobby. But in the glorious light of Easter Sunday, death and darkness have nowhere to hide. Everything sad comes untrue in the end. Life 
has an entirely new meaning. Yours, your faith and mine, it has an immovable anchor now. And we who believe possess a hope that is eternal and indestructible. It cannot diminish. It will not fade away. It cannot be lost because Jesus Christ is alive. Now, I want to encourage us here as we close that God might lead us to respond. And there are many ways we might respond. If perhaps today you'd like to pray about what it means to know Christ, to be saved by grace, then I want to invite you here in a moment, during the prayer, during our song, to to find one of our pastors. They'll be standing right by the doors in the back of the room. If you'd like to talk and pray about what it means to be a Christian, to be forgiven of sin, to be united with Christ, to receive life in His name, then we would love nothing more today than to have that conversation with you. But however we respond today, let's do this. Let's ask God to do for us what Jesus so graciously did for Cleopas and his friend. May God open our eyes. May he set our hearts aflame by the saving knowledge of a living Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask you this morning for all of us, for me, for everyone in this room, for all of us who might be watching online. Father, would you give us at least some sense this morning of the world as it was for those first disciples? Would you help us to to see and feel the bleakness, the darkness, the heaviness of a dead and buried Jesus who stayed dead and buried. Of how, of how hopeless all of life would be in that case. And if we're able, Lord, to feel that weight even just a little bit, Father, would you grant us now the overwhelming sense of light and grace and hope and joy and gratitude that we now know the world as it is. A world, Lord, where the tomb is empty and the Savior is gloriously alive. An indestructible, incorruptible, glorious, bright and shining body who one day in all His mercy and love and grace will raise us up and make us like Him. Father, we have have no real category for this great of a hope. And I pray, Lord, help us to create one. Help us to have just some sense of how wonderful our Savior is. How powerful He is. And Lord, how how um, with great initiative and patience and mercy and grace he has come for us to open our eyes, to set our hearts on fire, to make his grace known to us. Father, will you grant us this morning as your people burning hearts 
that we would see Easter as being true and that we will be transformed by it. That we will see Jesus as alive and we will enjoy life ourselves in union with Him because we have trusted Him today. Father, thank You that that You have given us, Lord, all cause to celebrate. You have held nothing back, Lord. You have, you have left nothing undone. Our salvation is secure and complete and eternal. Because of the life and death and the resurrection of Your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And for this we say, Lord, thank You. Thank you in his great name. Amen.